So our scripture this morning, uh, we are in the book of Acts, which is actually a continuation of the gospel of Luke. So all year we have been in this story about uh, Jesus told from the perspective of Luke, uh, Jesus's whole life and ministry and death and resurrection. And as you get into Acts, he ascends to God the Father and the Holy Spirit comes and there's this whole beginning of God's people and the life of Jesus living on through the church. So we are in chapter 4, the last paragraph, the end, beginning at verse 32, going into the first part of chapter 5. And I invite you to bow with me as we pray and ask God to speak to us. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and help us to hear this word, the word of the words that are in Acts Also, the words that are spoken by me so that we are hearing you. In Christ's name, amen. Acts 4, beginning at verse 32. Listen to God's word. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young man came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. This is the gift of God's word. So this is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. But that's a tough story. 
That's a tough story. That would be like you who, every year, we fill out a pledge card that looks like this. And you say what you're committing to give in 2016 to Trinity. And it would be like me going up to Daniel here and saying, Daniel, how much have you given this year to the church? And I've got this in front of me. Because Ananias and Sapphira obviously made a commitment. We don't get all the script, but they obviously committed to give all of what they were selling this land for. And Daniel tells me less than what's on this card. And he drops dead. And then his wife Katie comes in, not knowing that Daniel has dropped dead. And I ask her, Katie, how much have you given to the church in 2016? And she tells me less than what they committed, and she drops dead. Now, we're laughing, but that is a horrifying story right there. Sometimes we read scripture and these horrifying stories, and we take them at face value, and we don't really get underneath what is extremely disturbing about this. Especially when what happens here and the sin that is committed doesn't seem all that serious. Someone is pretending to actually do more than they've done, getting credit for something that they didn't do. How often has that sin been committed in the church? It's a fairly common sin, don't you think? And not only that, the harshness of Peter, the harshness of God, this judgmental attitude with no opportunity for repentance... No opportunity to say, you know, this was wrong, you lied, and give them the opportunity to to change and to turn back to God, which is not what we see later on in Peter. It's certainly not what we see throughout Scripture in Jesus and the heart of God. So this is a difficult story, but Luke chooses to tell it. Why? Why? Luke crafts a whole gospel choosing to lift up certain stories. And there is teaching going on. There's discipling going on. There's intentionality teaching us about God and what it means to be God's people. Why does Luke have this story in here? I find it fascinating to notice that two times we hear the phrase, and great fear seized them all. Well, yeah. Great fear sees them all, but this seems to be a positive thing, an important thing. What kind of fear is a good kind of fear? What kind of fear do you think Luke is wanting to communicate? in a teaching and shaping and discipling way for the church. I want to lift up three possibilities from this story. One could be the fear of God. The fear of God's judgment. You know, there is a saying in the Old Testament, it's a a wisdom saying, and you hear it throughout the Psalms, and you hear it throughout the writings, and that phrase is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a tough phrase. 
because it's seeing fear as a positive thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear as in awe. Fear as in consequences. We do want our own children, grandchildren, to have a proper respect and awe and fear when it comes to consequences, like a hot stove, like a fire, like the power of the ocean. So is that what is being communicated here? Except with this extreme story, the kind of fear that could be engendered here could be the very fear that gets in the way of our relationship with God. We know that maturity for us, the way we've articulated it here at Trinity, is to know Jesus so intimately that we become like him. Well, who wants to know somebody they're afraid of? Who wants to draw near to somebody that is that extreme in the consequences? I have something on my wall upstairs. My mom passed away way back in 1993. And um, she, at one point in her journey of faith in the church, she was a part of what's called evangelism explosion, and you were encouraged to write your testimony. In other words, your journey of faith. My mom was very shy, very quiet, but she wrote this, and my sister gave me a copy of it, and it's on my wall in my house. And I want to read you the first paragraph. She writes this. As a child, I grew up in a church-going family and spent many years attending Sunday school and catechism classes. At the proper age, I passed the examination and joined the church and turned my life over to the Lord. Maintaining my relationship to God has always been very important to me. And as I look back, it seems to me this is something I did maybe because it was expected of me. Also, I was afraid of what might happen if I didn't. We were taught to fear and love God with great stress on the fear. I pictured him out there somewhere sitting as a judge. I don't think Luke is trying to teach that kind of fear. When you look at what motivated Barnabas and the rest of the church, it was not fear that motivated them to sell their property and to generously give it to those in need. We're told that it was great grace Great grace was upon them all. They were not moved by fear, but they were moved by God's grace and this risen Jesus in their midst, very nearby. So there is something to the fear of the Lord, but that doesn't seem to be what Luke is teaching here. Let me try another one on you. What about fearing Satan? Some people notice in this story a contrast between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Satan. You have this amazing transformation of the believers as the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon them. They are of one heart and mind. They're willing to sell their possessions and distribute to those in need. You see this amazing example of Barnabas, this amazing generosity and love. And you have that, and all of a sudden, but is the next word, and you go into this contrasting story, which is about Ananias and Sapphira and what they did. And interestingly, Peter says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? In one of our learning circles as a church, the one that's about follow me, 
we have discovered that it is important to learn how to pay attention to the voice of Jesus as opposed to the voice of the adversary. Who is this adversary? One of the things we have asked people to read or to know about is a book by C.S. Lewis written many years ago in the middle of the 20th century called The Screwtape Letters. The subscript is how a senior devil instructs a junior devil in the art of temptation. And C.S. Lewis, in his preface, introduction to this book, he answers the question, do I believe in the devil? And he writes these really important paragraphs. Now, if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and, like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God and as a corollary to us. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael, an archangel. By the way, we're going to read and discuss this book together at the end of July. As you saw in the announcements, you might want to read more on that. But the truth is, Luke, in this story, recognizes the work of the adversary, the work of Satan. But this story is not focused on fearing the work of Satan, who is no match to God. Okay, so Luke perhaps is not teaching about fearing God and God's judgment, not fearing Satan. Maybe Luke is teaching about fearing possessions and wealth and the captivity that they can have upon us. He tells these two contrasting stories about the power of possessions in the disciples' lives amazingly different. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions. Everything they owned was held in common. Now, by the way, he's not teaching some kind of Christian Marxism here. This is very voluntary. It's coming out of the transformation of love that's happening in their lives, in their relationship with Jesus Christ. What he's highlighting is what could easily be called a miracle in Barnabas, in the people, every bit a miracle as was the healing of the lame man who couldn't walk from birth. This healing of wealth and money turning into a way of loving others instead of clinging to a false security. And Luke, more than any other writer in the Old Testament or New Testament, tells stories about money and wealth and how they can be a danger in our lives instead of a blessing. He tells parables about wealth and money and riches and parables that aren't found anywhere else except in Luke. So is Luke teaching us to fear wealth and possessions? Well, there's more that we need to know as we try to figure out what Luke was teaching here. We need to know that there is a story in the Old Testament that when Luke told this story about Ananias and Sapphira, it would automatically cause all of his hearers, all of his readers, to think of another story in Joshua 7, and it's called Achan's Sin. That's the name of the man. His name was Achan. And this is the very beginning of God's people, 
After they'd been in the wilderness for 40 years, shaped and called as God's people, they were trying to find their way to the promised land, and they were bumping into enemy after enemy, and they were fighting war after war. And God specifically said, do not hold back any of the spoils of the war. One man decided to do it. He held back the spoils of the war. He went and buried it in the ground. He covered it up. And guess what happened? The people lost the war. It affected the whole people of God, and also it had deadly consequences for Achan and everyone in his community. I want you to know that that phrase in the Ananias and Sapphira story where it says they kept back part of the proceeds, exact same verb that's used in the Achan story. They kept back. And the people had this automatic sobering sensibility that that cover-up and that deceit and that hypocrisy had deadly consequences not only for Achan but for the whole people of God. They were very aware of that. So it's like Luke is saying fear this deceit among God's people. Not focused on fearing God and the consequences of God's judgment. Not focused on fearing Satan. Not focused on fearing wealth and and all the tempting idols that come with possessions. No, fear this. Not being honest with God in the church. We've seen just a little bit of the deadly consequences of this in the movie, the best picture of the year in 2015, the movie Spotlight told the story about the Boston Globe, the research, the probe that was done into the Catholic Church in 2001, revealing this cover-up, this deadly, devastating cover-up. Not just one or two child molestations by priests, but how many was it? Ninety? This devastation for the lives of those who'd been molested, devastation for the church, absolutely devastating. There is this temptation that comes to all of us, that comes to the people of God to make things look better than they are, especially in the church. When I was in my previous pastorate, I was associate pastor. I was working with a pastor who was incredibly brilliant. He read widely. He was theologically astute. He was a teacher. He was a great communicator. He was kind of an answer man, and he knew all things. And I had this impression that as a pastor, I was supposed to have all the answers. And if I didn't have all the answers, I was supposed to pretend like we were okay (laughs) until we figured out all the answers. And it wasn't until several years into my ministry here that I realized, you know, that's not really a helpful thing. It's not a helpful thing for me, and it's not a helpful thing for the church. And quite frankly, it had very damaging uh, effects, consequences in my previous church. It is easy for us to compare ourselves to others. Perhaps Ananias compared themselves to Barnabas, thinking, I need to be like him. And if I'm not really like him, I need to pretend like I'm like him. And so they went and they pretended to be something that they weren't. Fear this. Deceit and cover up in the church. We don't know everything. We do stupid things. 
we struggle. We struggle with wealth and possessions. We live in the context of enormous expense, enormous concerns about health care costs, enormous debt, endless ways to spend money. A friend calls me, let's meet in Redwood City, let's have dinner, okay, let's go to Vesta, boom, $50 gone. My credit card buying airfare for the reunion in Kentucky and then airfare for this and my credit card comps and I'm supposed to pay my taxes. Like, whoa, my savings are like. Enormous expenses. Easy to hold back for myself. When that happens, all of a sudden I get real miserly. And I hold back for myself and I don't give God what is God's. Okay, we struggle. Don't cover it up. Be real with God and with one another. We struggle with doubt. It was poignant to go visit one of our members who's no longer able to be with us in worship and to hear this person say, who's a person of longtime faith, sometimes I look at the whole story about Jesus and I'm not sure I believe it. And I said to her, sometimes I do too. And then God comes at me sideways and shows me that God is very real. Honest. Honest. We struggle. I want to read to you the next part of my mom's testimony, okay? A few years ago, I started in a very good Bible study group, which has made God's word really come alive for me. I began to realize what he has done for all of us through his son, Jesus Christ, I also began to realize that no matter how hard I tried, my life could never measure up. I learned that he is a loving God and right here with us always. We may stumble along and do foolish things, but he's always right there to pick us up and forgive and love us. This, to me, has been something like waking up after dreaming. The more you learn of him, the more you realize that he is in control of everything. And if we trust him and his promises, we have nothing to fear now or ever. I love that. Now, I know it's Father's Day, and I should be reading something from my father, but I just love that. It just so fits where I think Luke wants the church to go realizes how critical it is for the church to go here. Seized with fear seems to be a good thing. Not fearing God and God's judgment that pushes God away. Not fearing necessarily Satan who's not equal to God and not worthy of our fear. Not fearing wealth and possessions that can be used for good things as we see. But fearing the pretending. The pretending to have it all together. Pretending with God. Pretending with one another. That is what is most deadly. It doesn't look like it, but that is what is most deadly for us and our intimacy with Jesus, and definitely for the church. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the great truth-teller, truth-teller and revealer, 
No secrets are hidden from you. You see what is inside of us, and you love us. And come to heal and work that miracle of transformation. Help us to be honest with you, with one another. Lord, deliver your church from any cover-up, any deceit, any hypocrisy, beginning with me. In Jesus' name. Amen.